Welcome to the Pacific Forest Foundation's Talking Timber, where each week you meet the professionals behind the Northwest timber industry. In this episode, we'll be talking to Arnoux de Villegas and Matthew Agai from Drone Seed and learn more about their operation. In the meantime, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Pacific Logging Congress and the Pacific Forest Foundation, both promoting sound technical forest education through projects like this podcast. This year, the Pacific Forest Foundation awarded $30,000 in scholarships. To find out more about the organization, visit www.pacificforestfoundation.org. Now, let's hear more from Arnu and Matthew. So my name is Anu uh, de Villegas. I'm uh, head of business development at Drone Seed. Prior to joining Drone Seed about a year and a half ago, I was chief operating officer of Cal Forest Nurseries. Okay, great. And Matthew? Yeah, my name is Matthew Agai. Um, I am currently the VP of Research and Development at Drone Seed Company, but I'm also the general manager at Silva Seed Company. Okay, great. So, um, well, so you're, I was going to ask both of you guys how you actually got into the forestry industry. Um, well, I'm originally from Belgium, and I um, I grew up in the woods, uh, walking around with my father and grandfather, marking Douglas fir and, uh, and spruce and poplar trees. Um, I... Um, I've lived uh, all around the world and, and you know, I worked in finance for a lot of years and international business and uh, the forest just kept calling me back. And I, um, for family reasons, ended up in Northern California, uh, heading um, heading a, an operation called uh, Cal Forest. Um, okay. Became deeply passionate about um, reforestation, specifically reforesting lands affected by fire. Um, you know, as you've uh, spoken with our colleagues, we, you know, we, we lose more ground than we're able to replant. And, yeah. you know, I'd like to leave more forests for my sons. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's my, that's my mission. Oh, that's great. And Matthew, how did you get here? Yeah. So I've been, uh, I've been in the industry about 20 years and working primarily in forest regeneration. So I started off in the Midwest in Indiana at Purdue University. And uh, I was a student to um, both forestry and wildlife management. Um, as that evolved, I realized that you need the habitat to manage the wildlife. So I really doubled down on the forestry piece, okay. moved west to Idaho, um, did a master's there um, and focused really at the at the seedling level uh, at the Center for Forest Nursery and Seedling Research. Um, this is one of a kind institute that really focuses on nursery production of seedlings for reforestation, native plant production. Um, built nice. a great front end of a career uh, after the master's there, working on a variety of international projects from you know, the US all the way out to the Middle East. You know, I was helping uh, and helped build uh, the Lebanon Reforestation Initiative as an example, and then um, after a number of years as a consultant, uh, continuing to grow and work with nurseries, I moved into uh, the Seattle area, started a PhD at the University of Washington, uh, which is still ongoing, but for the last seven years, basically migrated from working in Silvix to now working with this technology company. Um, and my mission stays the same, which is figure out by any means possible how to uh, make sure we have enough of a supply chain to actually scale reforestation for our needs, including um, addressing these big wildfires. Oh, great. 
So just a little bit actually about drone seed itself and what makes it a little different or unique for people who don't know about it. Yeah, I mean, originally we started as, um, you know, purely uh technology company where we were creating automated solutions for addressing that reforestation backlog. Specifically, we were building uh, hardware, software, and standard operating procedures so that we can actually take aircraft and conduct aerial seating in some of the most difficult conditions, um, you know, terrain conditions after wildfire. Um, we quickly realized that the, there's much more to the reforestation process that isn't being addressed by the many stakeholders in the uh, in any consolidated way. So we expanded our scope to include reinforcing critical elements of the supply chain, and that includes uh, developing technologies and supporting conventional practices around seed supply. That means collecting, sourcing, and redistribution of seed for any landowner, um, but also seedling production. So now we're this really one-stop shop for reforestation that offers everything from conventional artificial regeneration practices that are very commonly used in industrial forestry and otherwise, but also introducing all sorts of awesome technologies and approaches like the aerial seeding um, as tools in the toolbox for foresters, for landowners, and any and individuals that really are participating in the, in the process. So are you finding that people use drone seed a lot um, or primarily for forest fires? Is that still sort of your that's our That's our big target. one? Place. Yeah, like we, we really want to focus on addressing wildfire because it's it's a backlog that, um, you know, left unattended is going to create more expensive uh, problems, both environmentally costly, but also economically costly. Mm. Um, you can imagine, you know, after the years after a fire, the more time that goes by, nature loves a vacuum. So the, the things that typically occupy these spaces are non-desirable or invasive species. And that okay. makes the actual cost of reforestation much higher. You know, your chemical site prep, your mechanical site prep, and any sort of tending activities from reducing biomass and the risk of fire all the way to the operation of planting becomes more expensive, more complex. So our goal is to be able to address that environment um, as fast as possible. So call us right as the fire cools and we can come up with a plan, you know, whether it's seed, seedlings, or aerial seeding inside of a year and kind of reduce the um, cost, but increase the efficacy of our, our addressing these areas. Okay. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. Um. I'd add, uh, Diana, really, um, it's exciting to be part of what I believe is still the only company that's fully vertically integrated from cone collections through to, um, through to seedlings being uh, replanted on landscapes. Um, and, um, and then one piece that um, we should add here is that we have creative funding mechanisms to help um, to help landowners um, fund the reforestation, which as Matthew says, is, is expensive. Um, so we have uh, the capital as well to help landowners reforest. And if this is the carbon offset, is that one of the ways that you do it? It is, it is. Our, our carbon financing solutions really ensure, as, as I said, that the landowner's got the ability to um, pay for salvage in the absence of mills offering them um, values for that lost material. Um, it pays for the site prep, including salvage, you know, costs that can, that can um, total up to, you know, uh, $1,500 an acre uh, in a lot of cases for the, the pre-emergent herbicides um, or alternate uh, veg management practices. It can, um, that adds, you know, another few hundred dollars an acre. Um, wow. And um, 
And uh, and then and then you know the carbon also pays for uh, for long term forest management. And what's really interesting about that is, you know, we we aren't participating in the the carbon market in the way that it was uh, brought online over the last two decades. We're participating in a voluntary marketplace and using something called ex ante credits. And the idea is that we're effectively generating new forests, so new carbon sequestration opportunities. So there's a net new, um, you know, potential on the landscape that serves not only fiber and other resources if correctly managed, but uh, primarily ecosystem services. Um, at, a, at a whole, um, because that's largely what we're thinking about um, after these wildfires. Okay, great. And for the someone who doesn't quite understand or hasn't heard about the carbon offset, not that there could be too many people out there anymore, um, could you kind of explain it a little bit, how that system works? Right now, if if you're a mom and pop or an industrial landowner or anything in between and you're hit by a fire, and you need to come up with some capital to maintain and manage your um, your landscape. And it's to, to our news point, it's going to be quite expensive to do this in a, yeah. in a in a rapid way. So the carbon offset by putting it on the marketplace, uh, by putting the land on the marketplace, the carbon potential that could be um, you know managed on that landscape um, after reforestation on the marketplace. You can have voluntary buyers pay for that, and effectively through an easement process, there's a revenue source that is put into motion for that landowner that can be used for forest operations, for any sort of future insurance uh, policy, so repeat fires or any other disturbances that might affect them. And effectively, through the management of carbon, there's a revenue stream. And this removes that pressure of having to manage a, a single-faceted strategy such as timber on that landscape. So instead of having this um, investment that you make in the near term that would pay out at year 40, 60, or 80, or whatever the rotation age is, we're putting the opportunity for capital in the pockets of that landowner for management uh, right then and there in the first few years, and then in perpetuity through the lifetime of that um, easement process. Okay, great. And for to kind of to explain to somebody who oh, back up here for someone who hasn't been to one of your operations, can you explain what they would see if they walked out and you were taking care of this forest, this burned forest land? Yeah, I mean it's it it begins with a relationship. So um, I'll, I'll pass to Arnu here shortly, but effectively, what we like to provide is a a one stop shop, and that's through somebody that's going to come in make an assessment on the landscape um, through data-based approaches. So um, okay. monitoring and, and you know, both um, uh, geospatial assets and boots on the ground. And then mm -hmm. we come back to the landowner with a, with a plan. And we, we huddle around this plan and see if it aligns with their objectives, um, if it meets the costs, and uh, if there's something that we can, you know, build out in the near term, midterm, or long term. And effectively, from there, it's it's like any other silvicultural process. But instead of having to make eight to ten phone calls from your insurance company to a contracting forester to uh, the nursery to the seed source uh, to the planting crews, we effectively consolidate all of that so that they're dealing with one entity, and we package all that up in in such a manner that it's a turnkey service. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's you know again, really a one-stop shop for reforestation, so that the landowner can really focus on what their objectives are and some of the financial considerations while we take care of everything from soup to nuts on the uh, forest management side. Nice. 
I, I really couldn't have said it better myself, man. <laughs> I, um, I, I would add um, a couple of things. Um, the entire process is predicated on the trust that we build with the, the landowner and landowner. Okay. Um, you know, the reputation that we have in the market of, of doing good work and growing good trees from our um, nursery facilities and, and the decades and hundreds of millions of trees that we've cranked out and with, uh, with very high survival rates um, that uh, Lander has become, uh, become accustomed to um, as, um, as a way to, as Matthew says, um, set a path to um, rebuilding or, re, re, you know, re standing the forest back up that a landowner had um, the hopes perhaps of transferring to their, to their grandkids. So, you know, it's um, often beyond timber um, mm -hmm. to rely on to, to send their grandkids to school with perhaps. Um, you know, they own their land for, for the love of the landscape, for, for, for wildlife habitat, um, for, um, for the fish in the, in the stream. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and we share that the, the passion of the landowner and, uh, of, you know, with their landscape and helping them stand their forest back up. And, you know, that's, um, that's an important component. You know, we, we really build long, um, long treasured relationships with the folks who we, uh, who we, we help out in the landscape. Oh, that was great. And I have to just ask this, it might be kind of off a little bit topic, but maybe not. Um, the trees that you plant in fire um, mm -hmm. places that burned, um, is there just different growing aspects to get those seedlings going than in another um, forest? Like say, I just logged and I need to, you know, maybe yeah. put some seeds in, but is there, is there, a, is there a sweet yeah, I mean, spot there or something? That, that's actually a great question um, because I think there is an important distinction. You know, there. Let me let me start with just a little bit of history on on our seedling production, if you'll allow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so in the in the latter part of last century, uh, so 1950s and onwards, we really started to standardize the production of seedlings for the forestry industry because timber was truly the incentive on the landscape. So as a result. We introduced a lot of, you know, basic principles of crop science to seedling production. So we standardized containers and, and you know, a lot of these uh, culturing processes for at least the Western conifer systems were standardized in such a way that production was streamlined all the way from sowing through the nursery production out to the outplanting site. And the standardization um, really rallied around a product called the Styroblock and created a seedling that was very robust um, of uniform quality. And despite who the grower was or where the grower was, if there was attention to detail on production, you get a really standardized plant um, in terms of its morphological and physiological capability in those areas that you described post-harvest. Okay. Um, now, the most success you see in these post-harvest environments is when we treat them, again, like a crop, where we come into a forest, we standardize or um, create homogeny in an otherwise heterogeneous uh, landscape through site preparation, um, through removal of excess biomass slash woody debris, and effectively tending what is otherwise a plantation-like environment. Um, this was both for timber or other objectives. Okay. Now, in these post-wildfire conditions, you're right to, to suggest that there might be a need for a very different seedling. And the latest science is suggesting that there absolutely is. In fact, in a lot of the post-harvest environments, 
if they were left alone, if as, so long as there were seed trees, you would see natural regeneration. Whereas in these wildfire environments, especially with these large, catastrophic, highly intense uh, wildfires, we're actually seeing devastation at such a scale and such a high heat, uh, 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 high uh, temperature that we're losing the the seed bank, um, okay. both the standing seed bank, the cones that are there, uh, the trees that can act as seed trees, but also anything residual in the soil. And we're not seeing regeneration um, because that environment is, you know, low albedo, so black with carbon, um, the temperatures that are experienced there, um, because of that low albedo, um, you know, low organic material environment are, are outside of the norm for what is uh, the evolutionary potential of many of the seed, uh, species that grow in these areas. So okay. um, lack of seed source, um, you know, new temperatures, and then on top of that, climate change driven um, drought periods that are becoming more pronounced, so effectively longer periods without rain. So all of that is lending to this very difficult regeneration environment, and our company is actually um, has been working on a number of products, um, both for aerial seeding, but also in terms of seedling stock types. So this is the way we culture a plant, the container plus the culturing method. And we're developing some um, stock types that are more suitable for these particularly difficult environments. So seedlings that can deal with those higher heat thresholds, that lower albedo, grow more robust root systems after the burn so that they can establish and chase water down um, to couple with the site hydrology so that they can actually survive these drought periods. And okay. you know, we're about two to three years in in developing these. I think we're we're pioneering a lot of these methodologies, um, but they're based on these crop science principles that, you know, there's really no magic. It's just a matter of developing the material, outplanting, and then creating a feedback loop. So over the next few years, we should be um, having more and more of these available for more landowners across the West. A nice opportunity to just to give a plug in, a shout out to our yeah. friend Industrial Forestry, who are um, a great partners in allowing us to, to trial new stock types, uh, new reforestation methods, because um, they they first and foremost understand that, you know, the current model is really unsustainable. You know, we need accelerated reforestation outcomes. Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsors, the Pacific Logging Congress and the Pacific Forest Foundation. The Pacific Logging Congress will be holding their ninth annual Live in Woods show this year in Washington at Weyerhaeuser's Vale Tree Farm. The dates are September 21st through the 23rd. You can find more details at www.pacificloggingcongress.org. Okay, now back to our new and Matthew. Cool. So you guys, because just your name Drone Seed and folks who might not have seen it, um, my understanding is if you are going to use drones, you have a puck that has the seeds and a variety of other components to help them grow when they drop. And you have a team that goes out there and distributes pucks based on the need. Is Am I summing that up okay? Yeah, I mean, we like I said before, we've actually expanded quite a bit. So we we have our operations teams and our our um, pucks being distributed by aircraft or by hand in some cases. Okay. Um, we have our seedling teams um, that are not only growing the seedlings but also our foresters who are overseeing uh, major planting operations throughout the West. You know, we're we've become this much more comprehensive uh, company. Okay. Uh, partnership of companies, um, nurseries, seed extractories, aerial seeding group, 
uh, technology group, Forest Operations. And, you know, the name does uh, reflect uh, just the technology piece, but we've become so much more. So I, I think it's okay to um, it's okay to say we are we are this much broader reforestation group, um, you know, beyond just what drone seed might represent as an okay, great. I just the oh, I had talked to somebody about um seed and getting it because it seems like with all the forest fires, the lack of seed is um an issue. Um so how do you guys go about getting your seed that you're using? So this is actually really exciting because, you know, this is a combination of the new and the old. And Silver yeah. Seed Company has been, a, you know, formerly Manning Seed Company. Um, and, you know, this is this is a company that's been around serving the globe with its conifer seed needs uh, since the 1870s. So when we partnered with Silva Seed uh, through an acquisition, we effectively gained all of those years of ex decades of experience and all those techniques and strategies for making sure that seed is coming in the door from orchards, from wild collections, and everything in between. Okay. Um, so we use a lot of those technologies, like um, simple things like uh, squirrel cash collections or um, kind of grassroots uh, foraging strategies. Um, we use professional climbers, um, like uh, those that we would contract to go out to specific areas where we've identified seed. Uh, in the canopies, and they'll climb up and actually collect, you know, bushel upon bushel of seed um, through that uh, technique. We also work with our industrial partners to time our collections when seed will be ripe in the trees and where in their harvest might be happening. So we can sell okay. trees and, and collect seed in that way. And all of that seed gets collected um, across these various Western landscapes and um, ultimately ends up at our extractory through some great logistics and trucking systems. And that's where the seed is cleaned or removed from the cones, uh, processed through our extraction equipment, um, tested and, and um, checked for purity um, and to meet our phytosanitary standards in our laboratory and then put okay. into our seed bank. Wow, okay. Yeah. Wow, quite a process. Just on a completely uh, much smaller note, <laughs> so yeah. say, say my mom has about 50 acres or 60 acres of extremely mature um, yeah. cedar and fir. And I think she has a lot of seed. Is that enough, um, to contact you and say, Hey, are you interested in checking out her? Would, would, would somebody, I guess my question is, would somebody contact you if they had land and thought, Hey, I might have some seed. Would they just contact you directly or do you find them? It, it, it's usually people are reaching out to us. So we set okay. up two different strategies that, um, have been around for again, decades. Um, we'll either receive a phone call and we can take, a uh, professional crew out to your land and do a collection where we take care of all the documentation, all the tree selection, all the cone removal and truck it back. And then, um, you know, usually we work out an arrangement where that landowner will have seed in our bank in perpetuity or we'll grow seedlings for them or some other exchange. Okay. The other option is we actually will open up and have open, um, you know, anywhere up to 20 uh, cone buying stations throughout uh, the Pacific Northwest. And these are great because um, all these collectors that have been doing this since, you know, the early 1900s yeah. and their kids and their grandkids and their great grandkids have all participated in collection. And they come to these buying stations with their bushels. And, you know, you used to be able to come in with a bushel, um, tell us where you collected it, um, get your nickel for the bushel and use it as fair money. And now a hundred yeah. years later, um, they're, they're coming in and they're getting anywhere from 15 to $30 a bushel for, uh, and, uh, a collection of seed 
um, that we do a cut test on to make sure it's viable, it's good, and we know where it came from. But it feeds our our, our wild collections um, and our banks so that we can redistribute it back to landowners um, in the area from which it was collected. So yeah, your your mom could give us uh, give us a call. We can come collect or. Uh, she can get the local kids in the neighborhood to pack up some bushels and, and we'd buy them from her uh, or from them at the, the buying station. We need more, right? So our um, state and federal seed banks have really been um, depleted. They've, they've suffered because of the you know, increase in catastrophic wildfires. Uh, and so we, we really need communities to pull together and to, to reach out and, and, um, and, and collaborate. You know, it's, it's, it takes a village, as they say, right? We'd like to once again thank our sponsors, the Pacific Logging Congress and the Pacific Forest Foundation for making this podcast possible. And we want to thank Arnu and Matthew for taking the time to talk with us. Till next time, take care.